Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. This week we are beginning a new book. Since we finished our last one, we are now moving on to The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon, with a translation by Constance Farrington. This is a book that tries to address some of the ideas around colonialism, settlers, and the narrative of white European and American people, quote-unquote, civilizing the world. The book is from 1963, so we're back to a book that's a little bit further back and may not necessarily have a particularly modern context. Part of the reason I picked this is because, as someone who lives in Ireland in particular, I feel especially uninformed about the problems of settlerism and native populations being displaced. Ireland in particular has a weird spot in that dynamic, which doesn't mean we are a people outside of that system, but it does mean it's not something in my day-to-day life that often gets addressed or highlighted. I would like to know it better because I feel like then I will understand the ways in which it is absolutely affecting our lives in ways that we wouldn't have recognized as settlers. So after that long preamble, let's get started on our first chapter from this book. Chapter 1. Concerning Violence National Liberation, National Renaissance, the restoration of nationhood to the people, Commonwealth. Whatever may be the headings used or the new formulas introduced, decolonization is always a violent phenomenon. At whatever level we study it, relationships between individuals, new names for sports clubs, the human admixture at cocktail parties, in the police, on the directing boards of national or private banks, decolonization is quite simply the replacing of a certain species of men by another species of men. Without any period of transition, there is a total, complete, and absolute substitution. It is true that we could equally well stress the rise of a new nation, the setting up of a new state, its diplomatic relations, and its economic and political trends. But we have precisely chosen to speak of that kind of tabula rasa which characterizes at the outset all decolonization. Its unusual importance is that it constitutes, from the very first day, the minimum demands of the colonized. To tell the truth, the proof of success lies in a whole social structure being changed from the bottom up. The extraordinary importance of this change is that it is willed, called for, demanded. The need for this change exists in its crude state, impetuous and compelling, in the consciousness and in the lives of the men and women who are colonized. But the possibility of this change is equally experienced in the form of a terrifying future in the consciousness of another species of men and women, the colonizers. Decolonization, which sets out to change the order of the world, is, obviously, a program of complete disorder. But it cannot come as a result of magical practices, nor of a natural shock, nor of a friendly understanding. Decolonization, as we know, is a historical process. That is to say, that it cannot be understood, it cannot become intelligible, nor clear to itself, except in the exact measure that we can discern the movements which give it historical form and content. Decolonization is the meeting of two forces opposed to each other by their very nature, which, in fact, owe their originality to that sort of substantification which results from, and is nourished by, 
the situation in the colonies. Their first encounter was marked by violence, and their existence together, that is to say, the exploitation of the native by the settler, was carried on by dint of a great array of bayonets and cannons. The settler and the native are old acquaintances. In fact, the settler is right when he speaks of knowing them well, for it is the settler who has brought the native into existence, and who perpetuates his existence. The settler owes the fact of his very existence, that is to say, his property, to the colonial system. Decolonization never takes place unnoticed, for it influences individuals and modifies them fundamentally. It transforms spectators crushed with their inessentiality into privileged actors, with the grandiose glare of history's floodlights upon them. It brings a natural rhythm into existence, introduced by new men, and with it, a new language and a new humanity. Decolonization is the veritable creation of new men, but this creation owes nothing of its legitimacy to any supernatural power. The thing which has been colonized becomes man during the same process by which it frees itself. In decolonization, there is therefore the need of a complete calling in question of the colonial situation. If we wish to describe it precisely, we might find it in the well-known words. The last shall be the first, and the first last. Decolonization is the putting into practice of this sentence. That is why, if we try to describe it, all decolonization is successful. The naked truth of decolonization evokes for us the searing bullets and blood-stained knives which emanate from it. For if the last shall be first, then this will only come to pass after a murderous and decisive struggle between the two protagonists. That affirmed intention to place the last at the head of things, and to make them climb at a pace, too quickly some say, the well-known steps which characterize an organized society, can only triumph if we use all means to turn the scale, including, of course, that of violence. You do not turn any society, however primitive it may be, upside down with such a program if you have not decided from the very beginning, that is to say, from the actual formation of that program, to overcome all the obstacles that you will come across in so doing. The native who decides to put the program into practice, and to become its moving force, is ready for violence at all times. From birth, it is clear to him that this narrow world, strewn with prohibitions, can only be called in question by absolute violence. The colonial world is a world divided into compartments. It is probably unnecessary to recall the existence of native quarters and European quarters, of schools for natives and schools for Europeans, in the same way we need not recall apartheid in South Africa. Yet, if we examine closely the system of compartments, we will at least be able to reveal the lines of force it implies. This approach to the colonial world, its ordering and its geographical layout, will allow us to mark out the lines on which a decolonized society will be reorganized. The colonial world is a world cut in two. The dividing line, the frontiers, are shown by barracks and police stations. In the colonies, it is the policeman and the soldier who are the official, instituted go-betweens, the spokesman of the settler and his rule of oppression. In capitalist societies, the educational system, whether lay or clerical, the structure of moral reflexes handed down from father to son, the exemplary honesty of workers who are given a medal after 50 years of good and loyal service, 
and the affection which springs from harmonious relations and good behavior. All these aesthetic expressions of respect for the established order serve to create around the exploited person an atmosphere of submission and of inhibition, which lightens the task of policing considerably. In the capitalist countries, a multitude of moral teachers, counselors, and bewilderers separate the exploited from those in power. In the colonial countries, on the contrary, the policeman and the soldier, by their immediate presence and their frequent and direct action, maintain contact with the native and advise him by means of rifle butts and napalm not to budge. It is obvious here that the agents of government speak the language of pure force. The intermediary does not lighten the oppression, nor seek to hide the domination. He shows them up and puts them into practice, with the clear conscience of an upholder of the peace. Yet he is the bringer of violence into the home and into the mind of the native. The zone where the natives live is not complementary to the zone inhabited by the settlers. The two zones are opposed, but not in the service of a higher unity. Obedient to the rules of pure Aristotelian logic, they both follow the principle of reciprocal exclusivity. No conciliation is possible, for of the two terms, one is superfluous. The settler's town is a strongly built town, all made of stone and steel. It is a brightly lit town. The streets are covered with asphalt, and the garbage cans swallow all the leavings, unseen, unknown, and hardly thought about. The settler's feet are never visible, except perhaps in the sea, but there you're never close enough to see them. His feet are protected by strong shoes, although the streets of his town are clean and even, with no holes or stones. The settler's town is a well-fed town, an easy-going town. Its belly is always full of good things. The settler's town is a town of white people, of foreigners. The town belonging to the colonized people, or at least the native town, the Negro village, the Medina, the reservation, is a place of ill fame, peopled by men of evil repute. They are born there. It matters little where or how. They die there. It matters not where, nor how. It is a world without spaciousness. Men live there on top of each other, and their huts are built one on top of the other. The native town is a hungry town, starved of bread, of meat, of shoes, of coal, of light. The native town is a crouching village, a town on its knees, a town wallowing in the mire. It is a town of, n-words, and dirty Arabs. The look that the native turns on the settler's town is a look of lust, a look of envy. It expresses his dreams of possession, all manners of possession, to sit at the settler's table, to sleep in the settler's bed, with his wife if possible. The colonized man is an envious man, and this the settler knows very well. When their glances meet he ascertains bitterly, always on the defensive. They want to take our place. It is true, for there is no native which does not dream at least once a day of setting himself up in the settler's place. This world is divided into compartments. This world cut in two is inhabited by two different species. The originality of the colonial context is that economic reality, inequality, and the immense difference of ways of life never come to mask the human realities. When you examine at close quarters the colonial context, it is evident 
that what parcels out the world is to begin with the fact of belonging to or not belonging to a given race, a given species. In the colonies, the economic substructure is also a superstructure. The cause is the consequence. You are rich because you are white. You are white because you are rich. This is why Marxist analysis should always be slightly stretched every time we have to do with the colonial problem. Everything up to and including the very nature of pre-capitalist society, so well explained by Marx, must here be thought out again. The serf is in essence different from the knight, but a reference to divine right is necessary to legitimize this statutory difference. In the colonies, the foreigner coming from another country imposed his rule by means of guns and machines. In defiance of his successful transplantation, in spite of his appropriation, the settler still remains a foreigner. It is neither the act of owning factories, nor estates, nor a bank balance, which distinguishes the governing classes. The governing race is first and foremost those who come from elsewhere, those who are unlike the original inhabitants, the others. The violence which has ruled over the ordering of the colonial world, which has ceaselessly drummed the rhythm for the destruction of native social forms and broken up, without reserve, the systems of reference of the economy, the customs of dress and external life, that same violence will be claimed and taken over by the native at the moment when, deciding to embody history in his own person, he surges into the forbidden quarters. To wreck the colonial world is henceforward a mental picture of action which is very clear, very easy to understand, and which may be assumed by each one of the individuals which constitute the colonized people. To break up the colonial world does not mean that after the frontiers have been abolished, lines of communication will be set up between the two zones. The destruction of the colonial world is no more and no less than the abolition of one zone, its burial in the depths of the earth or its expulsion from the country. The natives' challenge to the colonial world is not a rational confrontation of points of view. It is not a treatise on the universal but the untidy affirmation of an original idea propounded as an absolute. The colonial world is a Manichaean world. It is not enough for the settler to delimit physically, that is to say, with the help of the army and the police force, the place of the native. As if to show the totalitarian character of colonial exploitation, the settler paints the native as a sort of quintessence of evil. Footnote 1. Native society is not simply described as a society lacking in values. It is not enough for the colonists to affirm that those values have disappeared from, or still better, never existed in, the colonial world. The native is declared insensible to ethics. He represents not only the absence of values, but also the negation of values. He is, let us dare to admit, the enemy of values, and in this sense he is the absolute evil. He is the corrosive element, destroying all that comes near him. He is the deforming element, disfiguring all that has to do with beauty or morality. He is the depository of maleficent powers, the unconscious and irretrievable instrument of blind forces. Monsieur Maillet could thus state seriously in the French National Assembly that the Republic must not be prostituted by allowing the Algerian people to become part of it. All values, in fact, are irrevocably poisoned and diseased as soon as they are allowed in contact with the colonized race. 
the customs of all the colonized people, their traditions, their myths, above all their myths, are the very sign of that poverty of spirit and of their constitutional depravity. This is why we must put the DDT, which destroys parasites, the bearers of disease, on the same level as the Christian religion, which wages wars on embryonic heresies and instincts, and on evil as yet unborn. The recession of yellow fever and the advance of evangelization form part of the same balance sheet. But the triumphant communique from the missions are in fact a source of information concerning the implantation of foreign influences in the core of the colonized people. I speak of the Christian religion, and no one need be astonished. The church in the colonies is the white people's church, the foreigner's church. She does not call the native to God's ways, but to the ways of the white man, of the master, of the oppressor. And as we know, in this matter many are called, but few chosen. At times this Manichaeism goes to its logical conclusion and dehumanizes the native. Or to speak plainly, it turns him into an animal. In fact, the terms the settler uses when he mentions the native are zoological terms. He speaks of the yellow man's reptilian motions, of the stink of the native quarter, of breeding swarms, of foulness, of spawn, of gesticulations. When the settler seeks to describe the native fully in exact terms, he constantly refers to the bestiary. The European rarely hits on a picturesque style. But the native, who knows what is in the mind of the settler, guesses at once what he is thinking of. Those hordes of vital statistics, those hysterical masses, those faces bereft of all humanity, those distended bodies which are like nothing on earth, that mob without beginning or end, those children who seem to belong to nobody, that laziness stretched out in the sun, that vegetative rhythm of life. All this forms part of the colonial vocabulary. General de Gaulle speaks of the yellow multitudes, and Francois Mauriac of the black, brown, and yellow masses which soon will be unleashed. The native knows all this, and laughs to himself every time he spots an allusion to the animal world in the other's words. For he knows that he is not an animal, and it is precisely at the moment he realizes his humanity that he begins to sharpen the weapons with which he will secure its victory. As soon as the native begins to pull on his moorings and to cause anxiety to the settler, he is handed over to well-meaning souls who, in cultural congresses, point out to him the specificity and wealth of Western values. But every time Western values are mentioned, they produce in the native a sort of stiffening or muscular lockjaw. During the period of decolonization, the native's reason is appealed to. He is offered definite values. He is told frequently that decolonization need not mean regression, and that he must put his trust in qualities which are well tried, solid, and highly esteemed. But it so happens that when the native hears a speech about Western culture, he pulls out his knife, or at least he makes sure it is within reach. The violence with which the supremacy of white values is affirmed, and the aggressiveness which has permeated the victory of these values over the ways of life and of thought of the native, mean that, in revenge, the native laughs in mockery when Western values are mentioned in front of him. In the colonial context, the settler only ends his work of breaking in the native when the latter admits loudly and intelligibly 
the supremacy of the white man's values. In the period of decolonization, the colonized masses mock at these very values, insult them, and vomit them up. This phenomenon is ordinarily masked because, during the period of decolonization, certain colonized intellectuals have begun a dialogue with the bourgeoisie of the colonialist country. During this phase, the indigenous population is discerned only as an indistinct mass. The few native personalities whom the colonialist bourgeois have come to know here and there have not sufficient influence on that immediate discernment to give rise to nuances. On the other hand, during the period of liberation, the colonialist bourgeoisie looks feverishly for contacts with the elite, and it is with these elite that the familiar dialogue concerning values is carried on. The colonialist bourgeoisie, when it realizes that it is impossible for it to maintain its domination over the colonial countries, decides to carry out a rearguard action with regard to culture, values, techniques, and so on. Now what we must never forget is that the immense majority of colonized peoples are oblivious to these problems. For a colonized people, the most essential value, because the most concrete, is first and foremost the land. The land which will bring them bread, and above all, dignity. But this dignity has nothing to do with the dignity of the human individual, for that human individual has never heard tell of it. All that the native has seen in his country is that they can freely arrest him, beat him, starve him, and no professor of ethics, no priest has ever come to be beaten in his place, nor to share their bread with him. As far as the native is concerned, morality is very concrete. It is to silence the settler's defiance, to break his flaunting violence. In a word, to put him out of the picture. The well-known principle that all men are equal will be illustrated in the colonies from the moment that the native claims that he is the equal of the settler. One step more, and he is ready to fight, to be more than the settler. In fact, he has already decided to eject him and to take his place. As we see it, it is a whole material and moral universe which is breaking up. The intellectual, who for his part has followed the colonialist with regard to the universal abstract, will fight in order that the settler and the native may live together in peace in a new world. But the thing he does not see, precisely because he is permeated by colonialism and all its ways of thinking, is that the settler, from the moment that the colonial context disappears, has no longer any interest in remaining or in coexisting. It is not by chance that, even before any negotiation footnote two, between the Algerian and French governments has taken place, the European minority, which calls itself liberal, has already made its position clear. It demands nothing more nor less than twofold citizenship. By setting themselves apart in an abstract manner, the liberals tried to force the settler into taking a very concrete jump into the unknown. Let us admit it. The settler knows perfectly well that no phraseology can be a substitute for reality. Thus, the native discovers that his life, his breath, his beating heart are the same as those of the settler. He finds out that the settler's skin is not of any more value than a native's skin, and it must be said that this discovery shakes the world in a very necessary manner. All the new revolutionary assurance of the native stems from it. For if, in fact, 
My life is worth as much as the settler's. His glance no longer shrivels me up nor freezes me, and his voice no longer turns me into stone. I am no longer on tenterhooks in his presence. In fact, I don't give a damn for him. Not only does his presence no longer trouble me, but I am already preparing such efficient ambushes for him that soon there will be no way out but that of flight. And that concludes our first reading of this book. Uh, as I said, the chapter is quite long, so it's going to be split into many parts. I'm not even done recording all of it yet, because it's going to be so sprawling. I will try and give decent recaps as we begin future episodes that pick up this chapter, and I'll do my best to try and smooth over the spread out experience of listening to one chapter over maybe like four weeks. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find it and lots of other leftist podcasts. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.